city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. If you're interested in the U.S. soccer, and involved in soccer today, the guest I have has been essential to that opportunity. Without doubt, your soccer genealogy passes through him at least once, if not more. I'm joined by the very important Clive Toy. Clive, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to start with, I, have a, a, I tried to introduce you, and I'm going to put this together and see how it goes. You can correct me, um, but I'll just, I'll just go with it. Clive was born in Plymouth, England, 1932. He had a prolific career in journalism until he came to the U.S. in 1967 to be general manager of the National Professional Soccer League's Baltimore Bays. And here's where it gets good. Clive is the only person to work for the National American Soccer League from the first day in 1967 to the last day in March 1984. He was inducted into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame in 2003 and the CONCACAF Hall of Fame in 2009. He's the person who created and named the New York Cosmos, and he's the person who signed Franz Beckenbauer and, in 1975, probably the most significant signing for soccer in this country's history, Pele. After you've listened to this interview a few times, you can learn more from Clive himself by ordering his book, which I've linked to on our page, A Kick in the Grass. What did I miss, Clive? You. It was a very good start. I was just thinking maybe I should have earned more money from what you said. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's too late. Major League Soccer is still there. Well, I mean, it's, it's soccer used to be spelled S-O-C-C-E-R, and though the S at the beginning is replaced by a dollar sign. Oh, yeah. yeah, I want to get to, I'm going to start sort of, actually my first question, sort of, there's so much to talk about, and I want to start with this idea that I think a lot of people listening to this don't realize how essential the NASL happening in 1967 is to what we actually have in 2023. Um, and I interviewed you before for the essay on the 35-yard shootout, and you had a couple quotes I want to share and then get to the question. You said, and, and I'll, I'll, I hear this in your voice, 35-yard offside lines and running penalties were hardly the most important things that happened to us. Getting kids to play and getting asses in seats were the two important things. And then a little later, you said 95 to 98% of the country had never had a soccer ball kicked on it. And that was the difference we set out to change. And, of course, it has changed. It continues to change. Every time I walk past a store and see soccer stuff on sale or see a commercial selling something, what I see is a little boy kicking a soccer ball. It's just normal American life now. And this is the best part. And it was weird, a foreign thing brought in by commie midgets, as some newspaper from California told us. From commie midgets to $15,000 for the World Cup to watch soccer to where we are today is a significant, indeed a massive change. That's where I'd like to start, Clive. Uh, when you got here, when the NASL started, what was here? Uh, not very much. Um, in a few places, uh, in ethnic groups, there was, you know, soccer was, was known in the local Italian community or the local Colombian community or Haitian community. 
but it never penetrated far from there. Um, even when the United States um, beat England in the World Cup, and was in 1950 when Joe Gagins got a goal. He wasn't a, he was Joe Gagins was Haitian. He wasn't American, but nonetheless, he was playing for the U.S. Right. national team. Um, and I, you know, finally found out what had happened to the poor fellow um, because people said, "Who's Joe Gage? What's the what's the World Cup? What's what's soccer?" Um, I mean, literally, that question was all asked again and again and again and again. Oh, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, what's soccer? Uh, I mean, it's just totally unknown. No, I mean, it's only last night I've been watching television. I don't know what it was, but in, uh, some commercials obviously came up. And on one of them, suddenly there's a, a lady kicking a soccer ball. And on another one, oh, suddenly there's a kid walking along with a soccer ball. I thought, oh, yeah. I never saw those a few years ago, but now I see them on television with ordinary people doing ordinary things with a soccer ball because now soccer is an ordinary part of their lives. And that wasn't um, – I'm glad you mentioned uh, the, the fellow who scored the first goal for the um, you know, in the World Cup for the U.S., and he was a, a Haitian. And there's a, a guy named I, – I don't want to mispronounce his name – Pablo Maurer, who writes for The Athletic who does a lot of stories like that. He'll go into our history pretty deep and, and, and find that. And I'm happy he's doing that. Um, and it, it kind of reminds me of what, you know, in a way of what you and, and your, your contemporaries did, because when you got here and I'll, I'll get to Pele in a, in a bit, but there was this real all hands on deck attitude and that included everyone. Um, and something you said to me before was um, in the, in the previous interview was you have no idea how much of our time with the cosmos was spent not thinking about off sidelines, but, and then you paused. When I was with the Cosmos, I ended up coaching a team in Scarsdale because kids wanted to play, but their parents, none of them knew anything except the shape of a soccer ball. It's a bit yeah, odd to think right. when you're the president, right? When you're the president of the Cosmos and signing Pele, sometimes I'd arrive home on a plane with my luggage and not have time to go home before it was time to go straight to the field for practice. And that's how our thinking was <laughs> getting kids to play, well, telling people about the game, having them listen to you and, talk about the game that was the important thing and i hear that voice well, a lot know, and i think about yeah go ahead I, I i look on the wall of my the part of my room i use as an office and um uh the first thing i see is a big cartoon from the daily express by roy Elliott, who was the big cartoonist of the day and there's a, a fellow looking like me smoking a cigar wearing a pilgrim father's clothes and the caption is, remember the Pilgrim Fathers? Well, this is ridiculous. Um, from the Daily Express, Clive Toy given free transfer. That was when that was my farewell from the Daily Express. And then next to it is a great photograph of Giant Stadium packed to the limits with fans and autographed by all the uh, Cosmos um, uh, staff there. Um, and then, oh, there's a photograph of Pelle and myself, or Pelle with his soccer ball when he scored his 1,250th goal, to my big boss from your friend, Edson Pelle, which is rather nice. But then, going the first thing I looked at when you talked about coaching, right next to my National Soccer Hall of Fame um, thing, is uh, um, there's a kid, there's a, an inscription, not an inscription, a, a a model of a kid on a background kicking a soccer ball underneath it says Heathcote Hornets 
Westchester County Champions, 1978. And that was us. If you can imagine, we started in Scarsdale, and we call ourselves the Scarsdale Hornets, but then um, when we won the championship, but we started in a little neighborhood in uh, Scarsdale, and about 10 or 15 kids wanted to play, and so I coached them, but it was, um, I mean, nobody else was there to coach them, because as you just said, their, their parents didn't know the shape of a soccer ball, never mind, but the kids wanted to play, and it was uh, it was a task I had while signing Pele, I had to go and coach a bunch of 11-year-olds. But that is what we all did. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Gordon Bradley, the Cosmos coach, I mean, he spent more time uh, talking to parents about how to coach kids or coaching kids, etc., than coaching the Cosmos, because that is what we had to do, was to promote the bloody game, not just win games on the field, which, you know, we tried to do, but to make sure there wasn't anybody who didn't suddenly hear uh, that soccer was around and um, they didn't know ask, have to ask what soccer anymore. We could tell them whether they liked it or not. No, they like it. Yeah, that's something that, that I hear from just about every NASL person I talk to. And I've, I've talked to Mick Hoban, who um, has had quite a career in the game. Uh, and he his first thing was going back to, coaching soccer camps, getting out, getting in a car after training, driving however far he had to, to take soccer somewhere it wasn't. Um, you know, of course, we had Clive Charles here in Portland, Jimmy Conway, who is, uh, you know, massive as far as teaching coaches how to coach and building the game that way. That just still blows my mind that it was a generation ago. And at the same time, uh, no job was too big or small for any person. It was just who was there to do it. That's right. And um, you had to do ten times more than you were paid to do, um, and for a bloody sight less, <laughs> a damn sight less than you should have got. I remember when I left the Cosmos, when I had the final impossible dealings with the ownership, um, and left the Cosmos and went to Chicago. Uh, Galee Stern wanted me there and uh, asked me how much I wanted, and I told him, and he said, oh, oh, you're not doing it for the money then. I thought, wait a minute, Toy. How stupid are you? No, you're not, you know. But that was it. I mean, nobody in those early days was doing it for the money. It was doing it because it was um, a totally different task to be undertaken. Right. And so that that's another good place to go. I want to get to your book, A Kick in the Grass, which uh, I reread again, as I told you in my email, um, just last week when we went on vacation. Um, it's too short, Clive. <laughs> the book. I want to read more. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I've just written another one, as a matter of fact, um, which I uh, I call Before I Forget. Um, and it's uh, I enjoyed writing it. It's full of stories that I recall from before the NESL and NESL and after the NESL and stuff all over the world and the way people behaved and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, um, in it, I criticized um, some of the foreign ownership um, that now exists in uh, Western Europe, particularly in England. And so the publisher in England decided he didn't want to publish it because I was being nasty to some people with money. So um, it's lying now in my uh, computer, and um, maybe I'll find a way to publish it one day. But um, it's uh, uh, it's a different a different story to be told, and it's still many stories to be told. Um, that um, 
it's a totally different day, a totally different game, a totally different situation. It's a, it's gone from nothing to something absolutely astonishing. Right, and that foundation started uh, rather tenuously. There were a couple moments in the book talk about, you know, there's one where, and, and this wasn't exactly the start of that ASL, but you talk about um, a moment in Lamar Hunt's, um, you know, Marriott hotel room in Atlanta where um, I think was it Paul Tagliabue? So that was like his first big sports meeting, and it was about the North American Soccer League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, how we came in touch with some of the people who were so helpful to us in the future, I really don't know, because it was quite astonishing, um, because I left the Baltimore Bays, um, and Phil Woosnam had left the Atlanta Chiefs, and we had become the principal uh, not only principal employees of the league, the only employees of the league, except for a one part-time, part-time uh, secretary. And uh, the Atlanta Chiefs were very generous to us and gave us a uh, league office in the stadium. Uh, the only problem was it was in the visitor's locker room, and so we had to move out before the baseball season began. I mean, we had no money whatsoever. <laughs> the... Um, uh, I remember our first press conference there um, was at a restaurant called Anti uh, Pat's Anti Pat's Porch, um, and so we uh, Phil Woods and I got ready for the press conference and sent out the notice, etc. And um, when no one turned up in the first ten minutes, I scribbled up some papers, etc., so we could pretend that people had come and gone. But by the end, no one had turned up at all. Um, and um, that was our first uh, league press conference. But uh, sitting there in the um, rather forlornly at times in the uh, visitors' baseball locker room, uh, waiting for them to be thrown out when the baseball started, um, Phil and I decided that two things were necessary, apart from zillions of small things, two big things. One, we had to bring Pele to this country, and the other was we had to bring the World Cup to this country. And um, fortunately, we were able to do both while uh, doing all the rest, which was at the bottom level of getting out there. And just as we were talking about, you know, all the kids in, in Scarsdale, uh, making sure we had all the kids everywhere. And the kids included uh, girls. Because I do remember, I don't remember her name, but I do remember there was a girl in California um, kicked up a fuss one day because she wanted to play soccer and they wouldn't let her play with the boys. And there was, uh, somehow there was a bit of fuss about it. And um, suddenly there were girls playing it. Uh, and look what's happened now. You know, it's just, just incredible the way that's gone. But um, and I recall seeing a game, for some reason I was in Wichita and there was a um, youth soccer tournament going on. I went to have a look at it and part of it was a girls game. And uh, the coach went out and took the girls, um, you know, I don't know how old they were, 10, 11, 12, and put them in their playing positions um, on the field and left them and the game started. And there was this one little girl in a sort of left-back position, and uh, she stood there and the ball went past her and the player went past her and the ball went, and suddenly it came to everyone's obvious knowledge that she didn't know that she was allowed to move 
Um, so the coach came on the field and obviously said to her, you don't have to just stand there. That was just, you know, just run around. Oh, my God. She jumped with delight in the air and never stopped running for the last 30 <laughs> minutes. Um, but, I mean, that was how basic uh, when things were beginning, just unbelievably basic, and they're not basic anymore. Yeah, and so that's something else. Like, I, This is part of why I started this this project and wanted to – get, you know, people like you and, and other people I've talked to on tape and share these stories is, you know, where we are now is fantastic. And I have every confidence my son and his kids are going to grow up with soccer in their lives in this country, right? It, I can go to sleep easy knowing that. But not so long ago, that wasn't the case. And it was even rather tenuous uh, in many times. And I remember you talking about, you took a job at Leicester City and we're going to leave the U.S. until... Phil Woosnam, who you've, you've mentioned before, and Lamar Hunt intervened, right? Yeah, I mean, I had a choice. Uh, I was leaving and going to take over as general manager of Leicester City in the English First Division, and um, uh, they didn't want me to go because um, there was a chance that we were going to find ownership in New York, and uh, I was wanted then by Lamar and Phil to be in charge in New York. So I remember Lamar wrote to... Um, the chairman of Leicester, who was chairman of the Football League at the time, Len Shipman, and asked if they would keep the job open for a few months because they really wanted me to be around while they found the New York ownership. And, of course, the New York ownership was found, and um, that's where I went instead of uh, Leicester City. Yeah, And I want to... Um, I'm close to wanting to ask you about Pele, but I want to sort of jump forward because you mentioned the World Cup. You mentioned getting Pele. It's something you set out for early on. Um, and then when I think about these moments where we could have potentially lost you, right, to, as far as soccer is concerned, not, um, you know, existentially, and that would have changed everything. And I, I, when I did, I hate to go back to the 35-yard piece, but that's uh, when I did that before and I talked to Tony Miola about that, he said something really cool, and I don't know if you know this, he said uh, that when he was a kid, he was a Cosmos ball boy. And he would go as, to every game, and he'd go as much as he could. And, you know, of course, Tony Miola was in goal for the 1989 Trinidad-Tobago when U.S. qualified for the World Cup. You know, and as a kid, he's coming to the stadium, and he even told me he and his buddy Sal Ros, uh, Rosmilio, I think, uh, if I mispronounced his name, skip school and they'd go to training and there was a security guard that tried to kick them out one time and Pele intervened he said, no, 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 they're good. They're with us. And so just that exposure to the game and that, that sort of, you know, infecting people with that love. And here it is years later, it representing us in the world cup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, one of the things I used to say is that I don't expect you to come and see us until we've been to see you. And we went everywhere to uh, say we it could we went to schools uh by organized uh, and had our training session not in our training field but on the, the school field um and then you know Gordon Bradley went to people's arranged people people's homes at, at in the evening with a dozen fathers there and he'd teach them how to be coaches and I go and make I could make three speeches a day breakfast lunch and dinner at various times to ethnic groups about their, you know, to encourage the, to let the, I remember, I remember making a speech at a Portuguese um, society um, gathering 
And um, I told them that, um, apart from other things about what we were doing, of how I had admired Portuguese football and Benfica and Sporting Lisbon and Eusebio and et cetera, et cetera. And, oh, you can see their, their eyes were lighting up a bit when I mentioned. And I said, you know, particularly that wonderful Benfica team of 19, whenever it was. And I went through, I thought I'd tell them what the team was. From the I can't remember the names now, but I remember the 11 of Benfica at the time. And, you know, I, by the time I got to sort of the midfield, some of them were on their feet. By the time I got to the outside left and named him, they were all standing up cheering like mad. <laughs> now, you know, the, the purpose of that is that they realized then that we were no different than them. Um, it was our sport and their sport, but by God, we recognized their sport and admired their sport. And now, hey, how about coming to see us next Saturday? Um, and this kind of attitude we had uh, with all the ethnic groups um, and drove them in. And that's, of course, that's where we got the first Cosmos players from the ethnic groups. Because um, uh, there was soccer being played, but, you know, no one knew about it. And no one went to see it. It was just the ethnic group said their teams were a bit of fun on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and just we made it known and um, turned New York into, I remember there were signs all over the place, I didn't put them up, that New York was Cosmo's country. Um, and, um, you know, wherever we went, there was, there was Cosmo's, 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 bloody Cosmo's. And, you know, that was my name. I, I picked Cosmos. I, that was the first thing when I became unpopular with the owners uh, when because they wanted to call the club the New York Blues because Ahmed and Nesri Erdogan were in the music business. And um, I wanted to call it the Cosmos because um, um, the previous, the most recent baseball team in New York was the New York Mets. And Mets was short for Metropolitan. And I thought, okay, what's bigger than Metropolitan? Cosmopolitan. And what is New York indeed? Cosmopolitan is a cosmopolitan city. So what's short for Cosmopolitan? Cosmos. So that's how I came up with a Cosmos name. And then to uh, to avoid um, calling the team the Blues, I had a, um, shall we say, a rather private survey among people to see if they'd come up with the, the name, vote for the name, and uh, finally got, to, apart from half a dozen people of my friends, I got to write letters saying Cosmos, we finally actually got a real group <laughs> or a couple of men uh -huh. uh, who wrote a letter saying Cosmos, oh, wonderful, you know. And so I was then able to tell the ownership that we'd had a survey in which the Cosmos was overwhelmingly the chosen name of the uh, the public and uh, didn't do me any good, but it made the club called the Cosmos. And that's that's perfect segue because you say uh, again in, in your book, "A Kick in the Grass." I'm plugging it as we go because I want people to read it. You say, uh, and this is getting us to Pele. You started the Cosmos with Pele in mind, and a few moments ago you mentioned that was one of the two things you and Phil Woosom said needed to happen. You even yeah. retired Pele's jersey before he played a game for the Cosmos. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, um, I, what I did is that? I retired the, the number. I, re, I retired the number 10 
from all the rest of the team. So we didn't have a number 10. And then I got a Cosmo shirt with a number 10 on it. And um, there was a game at Yankee Stadium, um, Santos versus, it was a Colombian team, I forget. It was an exhibition game at, uh, at Giant Stadium. And before the game, I went on the field and had Pelly come to the microphone, and I gave him gave him his uh, Cosmo shirt and said, here's your Cosmos number 10, and you will wear it one day, and blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, that's a big laugh. Uh, but I gave him his Cosmos shirt then, and the, he was the only number 10 Cosmos shirt that there was, was Pele's shirt from was a year or two before he signed. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's smart, right? I mean, it's brilliant. So, so you, well, when you were, um, you know, pursuing Pele, you couldn't necessarily say we're pursuing Pele, although in some ways I'm sure people knew you were. But you came up, there was a nickname for him, a code name, Big Crocodile. Oh, yes, that's right. right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So how, yeah. How, did, how, did, how did that come about? And, um, you know, was it effective oh, to use a code name, or were people pretty sure? You, you're, you're asking, you're expecting my memory to be perfect. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 came, I came up with that because I didn't want Pele's name mentioned in emails and all that kind of stuff um, in case, you know, it all went wrong. Um, but uh, somehow or other, yes, he became known as that. And I, uh, I, I traveled so often to see him in so many places that um, uh, in the end, I think he had to say yes to get to stop seeing me all the time. <laughs> um, but I mean, it started, we got, I mean, it started the first time I met with him was in, was in Jamaica. Santos were playing a game or the Brazil was playing a game in Jamaica and Pele was there, and that was a you know much shorter flight than going all the damn way to Brazil. So I popped down to Kingston, Jamaica, to see him, introduce myself to him outside the hotel, and and told him why, who I was, what I was, and what I wanted, which was him to come to America. Uh, and he said later, "Well, on earth is that man talking about?" Um, <laughs> but that was the first thing, and then after that, I just kept after him. Um, um, you know, with sensible, I think, sensible suggestions to him that time was coming and whatever. And finally, um, it was in Brussels in uh, Belgium. Uh, there was a big game, testimonial game for one of the big names there. And the place was full of superstars, including uh, including Pele. Um, and um, uh, in fact, I upset one of them, Altafini, who was a great Brazilian-Italian um, came in the room when I was talking to Pele once and I was running out of time and Altavidi came in and saw what was going on and said, hey, you know, I'll come in to play as well. And I mean, I offered him 15000 a season to get rid of him because I, I was <laughs> running short of time with, with Pele. And finally, Pele pulled a piece of paper from the desk of the, the motel. Um, I forget what the place was called now. And scribble on it, Pele's last offer. It wasn't Pele's last offer. It was Pele's only offer, and um, in which he um, uh, he said he would sign for. Uh, he wanted three million for two years, um, and so he signed it, gave it to me, and I said, "Okay, we're getting somewhere." And he was off to a, a 
game in Italy in Rome next week. So I arranged to see him in Rome the next week and had all the contracts, etc., drawn up and went there and um, put all the papers in front of him. And he said, uh, Clivey, because he always pronounced the E on the end of my first name, Clivey. My English mm-hmm. is not good. And I said, Pelly, it's getting better all the time. What's the matter? He said, Clivey, my English is not good. In Belgium, I say three million for two years. No, Clivey, you offer me two million for three years. Clivey, my English is not good. Because that is what I had offered him, two million for three years, which included his marketing rights. And so that is what he ended up uh, signing. And um, he came, uh, not wasn't much later, finally we got the agreement and uh, uh, did it. So that's fantastic. You, I've got sort of two follow-up questions then to that moment. That was, I think, about March 27th, maybe, 1975, somewhere around there. Uh, it um, could be, I guess, yes. I took, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you still have that paper that his contract's on, that, that hotel piece of paper? No, I lost it somewhere. And strangely, oh. I don't, no idea, but suddenly, about a few months ago, I saw it was... Uh, if you look at the, I forget what it's called, National Football Museum or something in England, mm-hmm. and they've got it there. Now, how on earth they got it, I have no idea. But you you can see it online. I saw it online. Oh, my God, where did they get all of that? So I must have lost it somewhere along the way. But it's it's there in the National Football Museum in Manchester. And, and you, when you were pursuing Pele, he was being, I mean, you weren't the only suitor. But he was close to signing with one of the Milan teams, and, and you said, um, sign for them, and all you can win is, cha- is a championship. Sign for me, and you can win a country. That's right. Uh, um, yeah, Juventus were after him, and I I, I, um, I became friends afterwards with the president of Juventus, Bonaparte, very nice man, and um, in fact signed his son um, for Toronto when I was running Toronto. And we beat the Cosmos, and Bill Pierty's son scored one of our winning goals against the bloody Cosmos. Um, but um, uh, he asked me how much I had paid Pele, and he said, when I told him, he said, yeah, well, you know, we'd have paid him about the same. So um, uh, that's the way it was. Okay. So it, in addition to Pele, you signed another, what I think is probably one of the I don't know, second or third biggest name in the North American Soccer League, Franz Beckenbauer. How was that pursuit um, compared to Pele's to sign? Well, what, what, I, what I wanted was to develop American players. Um, and we had a rule in the NESL in those days that you had to have American, three Americans on the field at all times. And I think that increased to five, I forget. But uh, we were starting to sign local players and develop local players. And I didn't want, when Pele quit, or, you know, Pele came to an end, uh, I didn't want all the media and everybody else say, oh, well, that's the end of that, you know. Uh, I wanted some attention drawn. Uh, they would realize that this was a continuation, not a, uh, a few years of excitement and then goodbye. Um, and they, the only two players that came to mind that Gordon Bradley and I talked about seriously were Johan Cruyff and Gordon Bre- and um, Franz Beckenbauer. <laughs> and um, we weren't sure which and wanted to get to know more about them, etc. 
and um, I managed to arrange through Detmer Kramer, who was the coach of um, Bayern Munich, arranged for uh, for Gordon to go there and to attend the practice, etc., for a couple of weeks. With um, when by chance Beckham, not by chance Beckenbauer was there, by chance Cruyff was attending as well, <coughs> and um, because of that. Gordon came back and felt that the the more professional of the two was uh, was Beckenbauer, and we both felt that the kind of player he was, you know, a midfielder or a central defender, um, it would be a very influential position for him to be in as we brought more and more young Americans into the squad. And so that's why we signed Franz Beckenbauer. He was to be the last big signing and to be the sort of the focus, the, the the focal point, and the the safety area, um, teaching, helping teach young Americans to be part of the team. That's yeah, that's excellent because uh, I, you know, as a kid, that was my first memory. Even though we had the Timbers here, and I'm going to ask you about them in a second, uh, here in Portland. Uh, you know, was that team Beckenbauer, Pele, and and just you know most it was a very visible team, and it was um, it's amazing to think how those guys came into the league and what and what they did to develop the game here as well. And it goes back to that sort of everybody's in it for the same thing, even if it's Pele or Beckenbauer, they're working toward the same goal. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were lucky um, that most of the money we spent in the early days was spent on really good people, not just good players, but good people like Pelé, yeah. like Beckenbauer. I mean, honest, straightforward, hardworking, you know, you could trust them to, to do the things. I mean, that wasn't the case with all the players we signed. Um, I mean, I, I would have signed George Best if he hadn't just disappeared in all his nightclubs in Manchester. Um, mm-hmm. And after I'd signed Pelé, I was asked, was I going to sign George Best still? And I said, well, why sign George Best when you've just signed the best? So that'll get you, because I, I had done a deal with Manchester United to sign George Best, and all, all done, and then went to find him, and he was out on one of his nights of enjoying himself, and um, never turned up for uh, the meeting to sign a contract with the Cosmos, although he'd been to New York and been, you know, my had him around in New York and everything was done, but you couldn't trust George. So um, that was the end of George Best. And um, the only other big name that I signed that I can recall was Canalia, um, which is something I regret but there. Right, right. So uh, I want to just one more question about Pele as well, if I can. Uh, and it's kind of absurd, but it's his first match here in the U.S., the grass was painted green, right? There was to, to look, it was supposed to, the televised match, the, the grass was painted green and, and afterward his feet were green, right? Yep. And, and well, it you, was, yeah, go ahead. It was done like that because um, this was a downing stadium on Randall's Island run and by run badly by the city of New York. And, um, the day before our first game, they had, without telling us anything about it, had some other big event at the stadium, 
I, I knew what it was at the time, but I've forgotten what it is now. And the they, the people had left the, that occasion, leaving rubbish, litter, rubbish all over the damn place um, behind them. And on the field had dug up a lot of the grass, so there were great areas of just mud showing, not green grass, mm. but, but mud. I mean, this is ridiculous, but it's true. So when we got there on the day of the game, um, I mean, it was absolute, absolute dreadful state that it was in. And those of us who got there first, which included Gordon Bradley and I, uh, we got our brushes and started sweeping the stands and picking up the grass, etc., um, picking up the litter, I mean. I mean, it's just ludicrous to think of it, but it's true. Um, and on the field, um, we got um, uh, some green paint cans and painted the, uh, the the mud green so that on television, because the game was going on television, my God, soccer on television, it's penny, soccer on television, incredible. And so we painted the, the, the brown mud green so that on television it would look good. And that was all very well, except at halftime, Pele came in and he had stuff on his uh, grass and green stuff around his uh, feet, his ankles, etc., and he thought he'd got <laughs> yeah. some kind of disease because um, it was a right mess. I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> and the, um, the uh, in fact, I've only just been in touch in the last couple of days on something with a, a young man called Charlie Cotone, who's a journalist up in uh, New York now. And Charlie was a teenager then. And for, uh, for some reason, I've no idea why now, he was at, uh, to help us on that, on that day at uh, Downing Stadium. And um, he had uh, he had his feet covered in green uh, green poison <laughs> from all the stuff that went on. Yeah. Um, he might be worth talking to Charlie because he knew about some of those gross details of Pele's first game and his uh, his fear that he'd caught something at half time because he had all this mess around his legs. <laughs> this. I mean, we're laughing, but it's completely absurd to me to think, I mean, it's not because I, you know, and I'm going to segue into Portland in a minute, but, you know, we grew up here with, with people like Clive Charles who, you know, taught players, you know, nobody's above anybody else, regardless of your position, you know, leave the game better than, than you, you found it. And, um, you know, this is the same ethos of we're here for this reason. And it doesn't matter who you are, you roll up your sleeves and, and, do what needs to be done, and it's like you said, you, you'd rather sign good people um, than good yeah. players. And this is a league that also had, you know, tried anything to build the game, and that was the number one goal, including, you know, there's mascots like Captain Dynamite you mentioned in your book, Crazy George, um, you know, the shootouts, the outside line substitutions. But the NAS also innovated with things like, you know, uh, numbers on shirts that weren't position-related. Right, that was one of the uh, that's, innovations. Uh, that's, that's right, yes. I mean, that's right. Um, you, it used to be that, you know, the 1 through 11 started as the goalkeeper and finished the outside left. And, you know, you might wear number 11 today, but you're playing inside right next week, so you're number 8. And, I mean, that's the way it was. You didn't have your number, you didn't have your name, and you weren't identified uh, like that. So okay, so oh, yes, we did that. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and Willie Anderson, who uh, a Portland Timbers original, uh, was the first sub used for Manchester United um, back when, you know, association football started using substitutes. He came to the U.S. in his first game for the Timbers. He's in the locker room. Uh, this is in Vancouver, uh, playing the Whitecaps. And the kit person gave him number 12. And he was he got very angry because he said, I didn't come all the way to America to be a substitute. And then they had to explain to him, <laughs> no, 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 Willie, that's your number. You're, you're number 12 for the team. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, I can believe that. I hadn't heard that, but I can believe that, yes. I mean, you know, it was uh, number 12, of course, yes. <laughs> now, we did a number of things that were strange, and we did a lot of things that were good, and uh, built the sport that has now become a business. So, uh, could I segue into the Timbers a little bit, if you don't mind? Um, Whatever, if I can remember. <laughs> sounds good. If not, you can you can make it up, and we'll go with it. Um so the, what do you first remember about the NASL Timbers? They joined in 1975. Um, was their first year? It could be, yeah. I don't remember 1975. I mean, you have to forgive me. I'm nearly 91. Are you expecting to remember mm-hmm. 1975? I mean, come off it. That's, <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, but you do mention you do mention Clive Charles in your book, and of the players you didn't sign. Um, that don't get a significant amount of space in your book. He is someone that's mentioned, and I'm wondering if he had an impact on you, a lasting impact, or your interactions with him. Well, I mean, I do remember, what I remember about Portland is a the Timbers, um, unlike some of the other clubs, I remember very strong feeling of support for them because the way they behaved, I don't mean ordinary behavior, the way they conducted uh, their business, the way they built their club, the way they te- seemed to me to, t- to appeal to the people, uh, the decent ways in which they ran the club and did decent things, um, made the Portland Timbers a, a positive um, uh, thought in mind. The detail, um, I do remember there's something about the way the fans got horses to get them involved in some exciting thing to promote the game, etc. Um, and I just remember positive thoughts without, I'm afraid, being able to tell you the detail. is just it's too long ago and too many memories. But it was a, a positive club and a positive thought. And I'm not saying because that's where you are. It's a, saying that because that's a, that's a fact. And that isn't something that could be said about all the franchises, all the clubs in the uh, in the league, but Portland was definitely a plus. And that's what every former Timber from then NASL I've talked to, they, they they echoed basically what you said earlier is, you know, we shouldn't expect you to come see us until we come see you, so we're going to come see you. And that's how it mm-hmm. that's how it built. Yeah, yeah. No, they they did they did, did a good job. So uh, I have a few more if you're okay. Any more questions? Yep. Good. And this one, this is this is the hardest one I want to ask, and you're welcome to veto it or not. Um, speaking of Portland, Soccer Bowl 1977 was Pele's last professional game. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell from your book or not, but I'm curious if you were here, uh, here yes, in Portland, if you were at Civic Stadium. Yes, I was definitely and, there. Yes, 
Uh-huh. And what do you remember uh, from the, that? Uh, well, what I remember as I was there, um, as the uh, president of the Chicago Sting, because I left the Cosmos and was running the Chicago Sting. And um, the one thing I remember is, um, I forget I forget who the other team was now, um, but I remember sitting next to Lee Stern, and I, uh, he said, well, I can tell which team you're still supporting. He said, you know, that was pretty obvious. Um, because obviously I wanted the Cosmos to win, even though I wasn't there anymore. And um, uh, there were, it was certainly unhappiness because some of the Cosmos staff were there. And I remember one of the ladies, whose name I forget, I forget now, saying how upset she was because she was supporting, you know, she was happy the Cosmos won, but wasn't happy that she could not share her support with the two people who built the club, which was Gordon Bradley and myself. So there was a mm-hmm. <clears throat> certain amount of angst as well as uh, surprise, you know, pleasure that the, the game was played, and uh, that was it. Okay. And I had while we're there... Sorry, run, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I by then run into too many of my problems with the ownership. A bunch of idiots mm-hmm. they were, were there. Right. And that gets down to... Uh, sort of, uh, I've got a couple reflective questions here at the end, but before I do, there's the last question. You know, honestly, I love the first chapter of your book. I love that title, Last Men Out, Turn Off the League. Um, and I mentioned you were the, there at the start and you were there at the end. You were one of the last two employees of the league the last day, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Um, <clears throat> I must say the the end is less easy to understand or to see or to remember than the beginning because we we were joined together in what we had to do. And at the end, it was, I mean, unbelievable bloody chaos um, when, um, again, it was the New York ownership um, who had uh, made sure they got rid of Phil Woosnam, etc., and brought in a friend of theirs, Howard Samuels, to run the league, and I mean, the poor man had the not the faintest idea what to do. I mean, bless my soul, it was just dreadful idiocy, and um, uh, so bad that that cost us some of the good owners who saw what was going on and could, just couldn't stand it anymore. And um, uh, the uh, it comes down to it. You know, everywhere. If you've got the right people, you might succeed. If you've got the wrong people, good luck. And we had the wrong people um, running the uh, running the league, um, you know, because I had run it and couldn't run it anymore. It was just a hopeless uh, situation. With uh, I remember Howard Samuels. I was in Toronto running the Toronto Blizzard, and Howard Samuels came out to make a big speech, and we had a big meeting. Oh, something was happening, something important. Um, and um, I think it was because we got the World Cup coming, something. And Howard Samuels made this speech, his big speech, is a great big gathering in um, in Toronto. And um, he said how important it was that this was happening and the World Cup was coming, because one day the United States will win the World Cup. And there was silence, and I said to him afterwards, do you realize you're in bloody Canada now, and you're talking about how wonderful day it will be when the United States wins the World Cup? 
a stupid blighter. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, yeah. the, the the Cosmos ownership, I mean, were absolutely dreadful, and they brought Howard Samuels in and made sure it was dreadful the league as well. Yeah. Well, I think here's here's where I want to sort of shift to the end of this, Clive, is, and I started this whole project as a way to, to sort of say thank you, and I hope that when I know when I look back and I see what you and, and Phil and others started, um, I know this, this season I took my son to a Timbers game. We helped paint the TIFO before the game. We were out on the field to help raise it. It was against the Sounders. Um, and it was just, you know, the infection has spread, right? The, the love has spread to him. And, and he was there with his best friend and his best friend's dad and having that experience. And it's because, you know, in 1967, you and, and a couple others decided this is what we're going to do in this country. And so, you know, I do want to say thank you for that before we, we leave and then ask you, if I can, one final question. And it's um, when you think about those days with the NASL, um, what do you miss? Who do you miss? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um well, I mean, there were quite a few I'd like to see again. I mean, there's there's one I talked to. In fact, I talked to him. He came to visit me about a month ago, John O'Reilly, um, who was a Cosmos um, PR guy. Um, and that was a pleasure seeing uh, seeing John. Um, but the, I mean, I'd like to see him talk to Gordon Bradley again. And I'd like to see him talk to Pelle again. And Randy Horton, uh, who became Prime Minister of Bermuda, <laughs> the goal scorer for us. Um, and, oh, dear me, I mean, there's a a few others as well that uh, um, we would have a good time talking about it, but um, those are the names that immediately came to to mind, and um, there are some I would never want to see again, but, uh, uh, I mean, some of the guys when we started in the very early days, some of the guys we picked up from the German-American League and the Italian-American League and the you know the the Hispanic the the Haitian club and um, uh, it was so many good ordinary people um, were involved that um, it was uh, it's a shame that comes to mind some of the people who are despicable but so many of the others just ordinary people who didn't necessarily do anything outstanding they were just good people running the local leagues, good people who wanted to help the national team, good people who became season season ticket holders and, you know, became Cosmos fans or fans of the Timbers or whoever it might happen to be. Um, a lot of ordinary good people. Gosh. Present company included. Uh, Clive, thank you so much. Um, so you finished? Well, I, unless there's something I've missed. Was it questions? I mean, yeah, I mean, for heaven's sake! I mean, good Norris, there must be something else you could ask me. <laughs> maybe, maybe there needs to be a part two, right? And when before I forget comes out, I'm happy to. to uh, I'm happy to revisit. Well, one one thing you could do is you could. Um, Oh, my wife has just walked into the room with a glass of water for me and said, make sure you tell her about your wife. What a wonderful wife. Don't need that. I mean, back me up. 
had also traveled with me from bloody London, where I should have stayed, from London to Baltimore. <laughs> what a dump that was, right? Uh, and then from there to Atlanta, where we lived, and then from Atlanta New- to New York, and then from New York to Chicago, and Chicago to Toronto. And, yeah. um, and that's nearly 67 years and later. That's right. She's still here 67 years later, she tells me. <laughs> well, I t- my biggest mistake was I should have interviewed her instead. <laughs> right. Oh, she could know to yeah. tell you things I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She was coming up on part two. Um, no, I will say uh, that that's very important because it wasn't just the players who you know came from other countries and set up and started building this. It was their families, and it was it did affect a lot of people. And there were a lot of people who made it happen, um, who supported, who did the same things. Jimmy Conway uh, here in Portland. His wife, Nolene, was a soccer coach here and, and a quite successful one yeah. um, at the high school level. Yeah. And it's just, it was everybody, literally everybody. Yeah. So I'm glad she said that. Sure. Yeah. No, there were, as I said just now, there were lots of ordinary people who did lots of things. Well, Clive. Um, so there. Yeah. There he is, the, um, the head coach of the 1978 Heathcourt Hornets an author of the forthcoming before I forget, hopefully. Um, Clive, I, I, I just can't say thank you enough. I really appreciate this time. That's okay. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at seven three to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio. You will see it on TV. But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the color, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's scream.